Welcome to the LSE Events Podcast by the London School of Economics and Political Science. Get ready to hear from some of the most influential international figures in the social sciences. Well, look, welcome, welcome to the LSE uh, and to the LSE Festival for today's hybrid event, which is why we were counting down carefully so everybody online could actually join us, um, which forms part of the LSE Festival, People and Change, uh, taking place from Monday the 12th to Saturday the 17th of June, uh, and really a, a way, a festival focused on how does change affect people and how do people affect change, which is quite a big theme of the LSE's own research and work. Uh, my name is Alexander Evans. I'm a professor in practice in public policy at the LSE uh, and a recovering diplomat. Uh, I was previously in, in government for, for 20 odd years uh, and uh, had the pleasure also of, of uh, studying here as an undergraduate. So it's a return to somewhere where uh, my, uh, my educational life began. Um, I'm very pleased to welcome a, a, a really high powered panel uh, um, and very grateful to all of them for uh, joining us. So um, we have David Sinclair, who's joining us, of the Chief Executive uh, of the International Longevity Centre, uh, the UK's uh, leading longevity think tank uh, and a prime source of advice on longevity-related policy issues. Uh, we have uh, Susan uh, Schofield here, who has a very strong LSE connection, but was formerly a Director General, I think, in both the Cabinet Office and the Ministry of uh, Defence, um, but is, uh, has also been the secretary at the, uh, the, the, the company secretary, I guess, at the, I was of, of the, and the chief legal officer. I'm the chief legal officer, no I less, no less, of the London School of Economics and Political Science. And last, but by no means least, uh, our, our colleague uh, and uh, somebody who will need a little introduction, Vince Cable, uh, Professor Vince Cable, uh, who's a, a professor of practice here as well at the LSE. Uh, former leader of Liberal Democrats, uh, former cabinet minister. Uh, and really the purpose of the next hour or so is to discuss um, the latter stage of life, uh, but not the usual subject on the latter stage of life, which I think invariably tends to be uh, how are we going to fund it? Yeah, so the conversation that often takes place tends to be one about pensions, public policy around the financing of pensions, public policy around the financing or provision of social care, and much less about, if you like, that psychological pathway between who we are before we retire and who we are once we retire, that transition into portfolio working or the day after. Um, and if we compare the, the advice and uh, support networks that exist for young people going into the workplace, uh, for people potentially switching careers at mid-career points, for people choosing their GCSEs or A-levels or what subject to focus on, uh, there is quite a welter of policy advice, institutions, frameworks of support for individuals as they move through those changes in their life. As against anybody sitting in their late 40s, their late 50s, their 60s or 70s, trying to manage a similar but different transition and a no less consequential transition between the world of work and often the world of status associated with work and the world after work and whatever meanings or, uh, or, or practices that, that associate with that. Um, so that's the, that's the theme of today. Our speakers are going to speak uh, uh, um, uh, for, I think, 10 minutes or less each. And then we're going to open it up both in the room and online and welcome questions coming in online. We have a fabulous piece of technology which I'm guaranteed is going to work free of cyber interference uh, and discontinuity. Uh, for those Twitter users in the audience, the hashtags for today's event is hashtag LSE Festival. Uh, I would ask you to put your phones on silent, please, to avoid um, uh, the updates on your Ocado orders or your latest uh, eBay bidding track record. Uh, uh, and the event is being recorded and hopefully will be made available as a podcast subject to no technical difficulties. And for those of you in the theatre, I will let you know when uh, we're opening up for questions and the usual practice applies. Please raise your hand and, um, and we will try and get round as many questions as possible. Um, so that's today's event and how we're going to proceed. And um, I'm going to invite um, Vince Cable to speak first. Good. Vince, the floor is yours. Well, thanks, Alexander. Um, I think probably a useful way of framing the discussion is just a few basic facts. Uh, 30 years ago, uh, one in four of the population was over 
55 is now two in four, it's half, right? Radical change in the population. Uh, I, I'm really just going to talk about two aspects of public policy. I mean, I've been in government and will try to relate back to that. And the first is what, what might seem a rather boring issue around pension ages and pensions, but, you know, money does matter and we, we do need to deal with it a little. Uh, and the second is around how an older population enjoys more flexibility in this sort of transition from work to retirement and how you frame labour market policy to try to address that. But start by something fairly topical. I think one of the things which is worrying policymakers at the moment is that getting on for half a million people sort of disappeared from the labour market uh, from the beginning to the end of the pandemic. Uh, now, some of these uh, are long-term sick, uh, some of them are carers, including carers of the long-term sick, but the largest group are actually people who chose to retire uh, and have disappeared from the labour market for that reason. And that has all kind of knock-on effects about uh, inflation and interest rates, immigration levels, um, and so the, the issues about why people retire and how they retire and when they retire have you know, very big knock-on implications. Uh, just a few figures about it, just to put it in context. At the moment, um, of 50 to 54-year-olds, about 5% are retired, you know, people who've you know, had won the lottery, comfortable for whatever reason, or maybe they're firemen who on an early retirement scheme. You've got 23%, um, almost a quarter, who retire uh, 55 to 59, others under 60. Um, you've got 46% uh, of 60 to 64-year-olds, and by the time you get to the official retirement age, um, 66, it's about 82%. The other 18% are continuing working. And then we have the, uh, amongst the officially retired population, um, the other 65s, uh, we have about 1.5 million who are working, uh, about 1.1 million full-time, the others part-time, average for all of them, about 22 hours a week. So that puts it in a factual context. Let me just say a few words about this age of retirement issue, now 66, due to go up to 67 in four years' time. And there's a big argument now going on in the Treasury about when you take the next step. Um, some people arguing for should go up to 70 in a few years' time, set by 2050. Um, why is this interesting and important? As a politician, what fascinates me is that in France, people are rioting about this issue. You know, they're raising it from 62 to 64, far less radical than the UK. We've got it up to 66, apparently without anybody noticing or caring very much. And policymakers will be pushing it further. Of course, there's one group of people who have been really quite radically hit, which are women. You know, in the interests of gender equality, women have lost one of the few privileges they did have, which is to retire at 60. Um, and within a few short years, it's been pushed up to 66. If you, the implication of this has been quite radical. If you're a, one of the affected women, you've lost six times 10,000, roughly, about 60,000 loss of income. Uh, you've, if you're poor, um, and this matters, uh, you're probably having to work in some awful job for an extra six years. But apart from a few polite demonstrations in Parliament, nobody seems to have noticed. So for some reason, the British are sort of absorbing these really quite radical changes in behaviour in the way in which um, people in the continent find, you know, very challenging. Um, and it, it could be because in the UK we've got a basic principle that, that as life expectancy rises, your, your pension age goes along with that. So there is a sort of element of fairness in it, but of course it clearly matters, and particularly for people who started work when they're young, have got hard, particularly physical employment, extending the age um, is, is, is painful. Um, and particularly because if you can't find a job uh, at that, in that period, you fall back on working age benefits, which have become very, very restrictive in the last few years. 
And the big choice at the moment, which is going on, do you push for a, uh, an early uh, jump in the retirement age, 68 by the mid-2030s, possibly to uh, retirement age of 70 by 2050, which the hawks are arguing for in the Treasury? Um, their, their argument would be we need to do it for financial reasons. Every year we can push up the retirement age, saves the Treasury about uh, eight, nine billion. Uh, it also forces people into work, which is where perhaps they tend to think about it. Our experience in the past has been if you push up the retirement age, one in ten of that age group are pushed back into work, mostly actually rather poor people who can't afford to fall back onto um, very skeletal benefits. Um, the, the people who are dovish about this issue and say we shouldn't push it aggressively are saying, uh, well, how, how can we be sure that life expectancy is going to rise? At the moment, it's falling. We're not quite in the American position of, you know, drastic fall in uh, life expectancy because of opiates and other problems. We're not in that position, but it is falling. So why assume it will continue to rise? And they will also point out from past experience that when you push the, work, the uh, retirement age up, it, uh, poverty levels um, in that age group rises from about 10% to 25%. About a quarter of that age group literally fall into poverty as a result of the increase. So there are quite serious issues at stake here. Um, and I leave you with the, the question is why, why is it in British politics, people have been sort of quite passive about the issue, whereas elsewhere they're very militant. Um, we, we only have a short slot each, but I'll just say a few words about the other issue, which is assuming we're getting an older population, uh, more and more of whom want to work in some degree, how do you frame public policy to make that easier to create greater flexibility? And I'll just touch on three issues. Uh, the first... Um, is one of the things we did introduce in government, this is the coalition years, abolishing the default age of retirement. So um, at age 66, no employer can hand say, okay, it's time for your gold watch, off you go. You can't force people to retire now um, at the retirement age. They've got the choice, uh, and a good business reason has got to be found for firing them. Um, a second thing that was introduced also by our government which was introducing the right to request flexible working. Now, of course, it's only a right to request. The employer can refuse, giving good business reasons. But I think there is an interesting area of research here. I don't know whether anybody has actually looked at um, tribunal um, experiences over the last uh, decade or so as to whether these two things have actually made a difference in terms of um, employee uh, claims in, 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 in disputes. But th there's a, uh, the, the, the flexibility issue is important because the Labour Party are promising to toughen that up so that if you do make a request for flexible working, it is assumed that the employer will be able to afford you that right. Quite a tricky issue around employer-employee relations. And the third element of Labour legislation which, again, I was involved in, is the whole issue of zero-hours contracts, which are generally regarded by most sort of progressive people as a thoroughly bad thing. And certainly my instincts, when it was put in front of me, was, well, we should just stop it. But, but then when we did surveys uh, of people who were affected by it, we found that zero-hours contracts were actually quite popular amongst uh, retirees, who don't want to be bound into contractual obligations, want to be able to turn up for work when it's convenient. So older workers, single mums and students, rather like zero-hours contracts. So we didn't abolish them. We cut back on some of the abuses around exclusive contracts, but we didn't abolish them. And then just a final thought about all this is that giving retirees more flexibility is fine, um, but many don't have the capacity to take advantage of it. There's about 9 million people in Britain who are judged not to be, to be lacking in literacy and numeracy skills, so they're not in a position to take on sort of demanding employment, um, which raises the whole issue of adult, adult education, which has contracted fairly drastically. How you pay for it, who pays for it. I mean, I've been an advocate of uh, learning accounts, which 
Gordon Brown experimented with during the last Labour government, but I think the Treasury pulled the plug on it because it was too expensive. Uh, but it's something that helps people uh, adapt to rapid changes in technology and gives them the, um, the background skills to be able to take advantage of flexibility, providing it's afforded to them. But there are other people in the panel who know more about that than I do, so I'll pass over to them. Thank you. Thanks very much. Susan, you. Right. Well, Susan Schofield, I'm delighted to be here. Very interesting to hear what you had to say on this, Vince, given your background. Um, I'd like to focus a little bit on the actual sort of psychological impact of moving from full-time work to retirement or a portfolio, which I think is actually um, not well understood by many of us when we're in full-time work and perhaps we're not aware of how much our sort of self-respect and status and community if you like is actually involved with the workplace it can come as a bit of a shock uh, when you retire um, I know this because personally I mean I've actually formally done it twice um, first of all, after 30 wonderful years with the civil service, who were actually, in my day, the only organisation that would interview, let alone hire, a single mum. Qualifications as long as me arm, but I must have gone to hundreds of interviews, not anything, till the civil service took me on thus earning a lifetime of, of just total, total gratitude and commitment. Um, but when it came to, we need to get the numbers down, this was in a time of austerity, the answer was then, okay, we'll get rid of all our expensive folk who actually know what they're doing because they're too expensive. And uh, so I was um, <clears throat> persuaded to take what was called early voluntary retirement. Um, well, that's when I sort of felt, oh goodness me, you know, I have been used to being the wage earner in the family. Well, fortunately, that wasn't the immediate problem because um, that in the particular version of the civil service pension that I took was, was generous. But the social impact I felt was going to be devastating. And actually, I was terrified of losing my social contacts and all the rest. So I spent a very, very busy time while I was still employed getting my next job, which proved to be with the London School of Economics. Wonderful. Thank you. Um, and again, um, it was so interesting to find that uh, so many of the skills which um, were apparently no longer required in the civil service were exactly the reasons the LSE was hiring me. Um, very, very interesting. Uh, I had started my working life in academia um, at the University of California in Berkeley, where we actually, my husband and I, had a small firm, as you do, uh, in our dining room. Uh, I was the director and I used to do the tax returns. So when I'd actually become a civil servant, this was very interesting to the chief of defence procurement for whom I worked for quite a good deal of my time because I was one of the few civil servants who'd actually worked in business. I was also quite useful um, in negotiating with Americans uh, because that's what my husband and I had spent our time doing. And I, although we were by this time divorced, I always used to think, now, how would Tim approach this? And, and actually, it was a very useful background. When I came to the LSE, what became very interesting is that, given the school's involvement and the interest which government had in its views, things that I might have expressed as a civil servant, no, being dismissed. When you do it badged as the LSE, boy, do folks listen. So very, very interesting. Um, moved on also from um, the LSE and acquired another pension. Um, and then really had to face 
But what became increasingly interesting was this idea of um, a portfolio. I had got a, a, a chair role while I was at the LSE, so moved into being chair of the Competition Appeal Tribunal, again, that legal background that I haven't got, but they found very useful, um, and subsequently have been building up the portfolio. It has been essential. Um, financially, um, several things saved me completely. First of all, promotion to Director General in the Civil Service. Actually, the communities department first. Secondly, um, very much um, acquiring pension while still working. Um, and the third thing, of course, very sadly, my parents died. And I was very much guided by um, a dear friend of mine who'd said once, um, the money arrived about 10 years after it would actually been useful. I made it my business to transfer, therefore, in a proper way financially to my son and his family, who were going through very difficult times um, with all sorts of um, mental and physical issues with my son's wife, mother of their two little sons. So he was needing to take time off work to support her, and I was able to support the whole group, moved down also physically um, from Kent to Sussex to be able to gift them place I bought and was able to pay off with all that money I got. Uh, so it was also important to make my own networks, social networks, work networks in this new place. And that's where, for example, becoming a magistrate was extremely useful. And also, um, um, I work now uh, with the police and crime panel in Sussex. And you see things from different angles. The most rewarding thing I actually do is I'm the senior independent director with a wonderful, wonderful mental health trust. And the, the brilliant work they have done during COVID and still are doing to people in total crisis, early intervention and prevention, absolutely essential. But it has been such a wonderful privilege to work with them, and it's really transformed the way I look at things. I have to say, coming out of COVID, I truly hope in this country we are going to do, like out of the Second World War, go back to thinking of social justice at all levels, uh, coming back to um, a health uh, service and social care, and particularly that sense of social resilience together at all levels, so vital and such an opportunity. And let me stop there. Susan, thanks so much. And thank you. Okay, I have some slides, I think. Okay, um, I, I, I'm slightly less confident than, than Alexander is in this, how we prepare 16-year-olds. As someone with a 16-year-old daughter, um, we're heading to a world of AI, a world of climate change, where frankly we don't know what we need to learn, we don't know what we need to teach, we don't know what jobs we're going to be doing in the next five to ten years. For all of you about to graduate, you've got a terrifying future, and that's the same across the whole of the... So we've got this real, real challenge now, and yet at the same time a massive opportunity because... Frankly, you can learn anything on YouTube. I shouldn't say this in place of, you know, those undoubtedly course, you know, there's MBAs, you can watch entire MBAs on YouTube. That We have access to learning, which is astonishing. And, and interesting, it's just sort of start with that, because actually, you know, the, the PM's had a couple of attempts over the last year or so to push the, we should all learn maths. And I don't know if any of you saw last week's last question on the GCSE maths exam, a geometry question where I had actuaries in my mentions arguing over the answer. I have to say, if we've got actuaries arguing over the answer of a GCSE maths question, that is not the answer to productivity. Um, so, so, so I think we, and, and in fact, what probably is, as an aside, is ILC did some work a few years ago 
ago on the relationship between uh, numeracy and how much sex we have. And we found that actually people who were numerate had more sex. So actually, if we were to convince young people to care about maths, that's <laughs> what we need to do. Of well, <laughs> it got us some good press coverage, I should say. Um, I'm just going to talk for a few minutes about a new index we launched at the World Health Assembly with the Canadian and Singaporean ministers a couple of, health ministers a couple of weeks ago, where we've pulled together across the world data from 120 countries that looks at lifespan, work span, income, environmental performance, and happiness. And if we have time afterwards, we could debate why Japan is sad or why America comes so lowly down on the table. Um, and, and coming back to Alexander's point, basically no one is prepared. Uh, it, when you look at the final index we have, that most of the countries in our top 10 are tiny countries. They're small countries, very, very small populations. So of the top 10 countries, only 1.1% of the world's population, and mainly Scandinavia. You know, so, small, uh, so very, very small, few countries across the world are prepared for ageing. I, I just, for a couple of minutes, just want to pick up on the, the, the column we have around work span, and we've looked at the number of years people work between the ages of 15 and 65, um, uh, limited by data we have for 120 countries, and, and that's what we have. Uh, one of the striking things is the top five countries, Cambodia, Ethiopia, Eritrea, Burundi, and Laos. Now, one of the interesting questions here is how many years do we think we should be working across our lives? But, but that, and, and it may be that that isn't the ideal, but, but let's come back to that. Um, we know there is very, very significant inequalities, though. 23-year gap in work span between the countries at the top of our league table and the top of our bottom. And, and this is sort of where I want to leave us to get the conversation going. You know, and the, the point about France is really interesting, and I'm going to nominally include the UK and the European Union for the purpose of this, this, the argument I'm going to make. The European Union and the UK works very, very few hours across our lives. We work in the European Union, or the European Union member states work on average 28.6 years across their um, adult working life at 15 to 65. Frankly, we cannot sustain a 100-year life. We can't sustain an 80-year life based on 28 years' worth of work. So there is a very significant challenge, and as it goes beyond economics, to how do you increase that figure for, the, for, for you know, how long we work across, across our lives? What we know is countries that spend, maybe correlation, not causation, countries spend more on prevention, health perform better on our index, so there is a bit of evidence around the relationship between health. But for me, the question isn't how we get to the Burundi figures or the Laos figures, it's how the Europe can get to the levels of Scandinavia, and that's three years. So basically, what can we do to increase the number of years we work across our lives? And that could include working past state pension age, but it also involves working a bit more of our lives between the age of 15 and 65. So we know work is good for us. You know, we heard earlier about sort of the, the, the impact of leaving work early. I've just, we're doing a project in Portugal at the moment, very, very significant issues for men leaving the workforce in Portugal with no opportunity because they're forced out because of mandatory retirement ages. Very, um, we know work's good for us. We know there's 1.4 million people who are leaving the workforce early, predominantly because of care and ill health. But actually, we also know within a few years, we're going to have 2.6 million gap in the workforce. Um, and we know that people who are healthier, work longer, spend more, volunteer and care more. So get the conversation going, what should we do? Well, we need more midlife, more midlife stuff. You know, we're absolutely obsessed with how we get 18-year-olds to do physical activity when they're the only group that bloody does it. Um, how do we get people in their 30s, 40s, 50s to really, really be physically and mentally active? Where do the interventions come in at that, that point? We do very little in that space. Um, we need personal responsibility, but we also need a bit of nanny stay. And, you know, if George Osborne is convinced around taxation and smoking bans, then frankly, this is not a left-wing argument. We absolutely need to regulate bads out if we're going to support people to, to be working longer and be healthier for longer. We need more active travel, you know, with lots of controversy about active travel. Active travel is the only thing that works in getting people to do physical activity. You know, we've got to make sure we invest in active travel. Um, we talked a bit about prevention. We would argue we need every government should be spending 6% of their health budgets on, on preventative care. If you did that, like Canada does, it could have a very significant opportunity, um, make a significant difference. Um, then on the, the sort of, yeah, the final sort of micro, a bit more onto the macro side, three points. One, 
uh, we need an industrial strategy that's focused on demand. So how do you know how do we create jobs that people want to do? If our demography has changed, frankly, and we have 2.6 million jobs, we need to make sure those jobs work for people, which links into the, the point about bullshit jobs. We need to get rid of the jobs no one wants to do. Use tech to do that and then redesign them so we create meaningful occupation but jobs for all of us. And that includes within the care economy, where there's very significant issues. And then finally, the, you know, an ageing society New Deal we've been talking about is no different from a Green New Deal. It's nice jobs and nice environment and nice working environment. And I think if we can get, get something like that, then it would have a significant impact across the life course. So if any of you have any ideas about what my 16-year-old should study at A-level, please let me know. Um, and, and finally, I'm not going to talk about this slide, but everyone's obsessed with where their country comes on our league table. So I'm just going to leave that up there for a few seconds. And you will see, as I say, that America is only just above Colombia. So I'm going to leave it at that. But thank you very much. Hi. I'm interrupting this event to tell you about another awesome LSE podcast that we think you'd enjoy. LSE IQ asks social scientists and other experts to answer one intelligent question. Like, why do people believe in conspiracy theories? Or, can we afford the super rich? Come check us out. Just search for LSE IQ wherever you get your podcasts. Now, back to the event. David, thank you very much. And I, I, we'll open up in, a, in just a moment. But I just wanted to kind of take, take a, a moment. What we've, what we've heard here is, is I think, a, an interesting focus on the aspect of that change into retirement or portfolio working that isn't often talked about. A bit of a focus on, on, on the people in the middle. Uh, stuck in the middle with you, how do we get the 40s and 50-somethings uh, 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 gearing up? Uh, how do we think a little bit about anticipatory policymaking? Uh, it, it wouldn't be right, of course, for any academic not to advertise their own work. Uh, so this, you, know, you have been warned, this is a moment. Um, so I teach a course in the Public Policy School on anticipatory policymaking. How do we think about policy over time? And I think part of the problem of lots of forms of policymaking, it's not unique to the UK, it's not unique to democracies, is how do we think about policies that are uh, anticipatory about forms of futures and also evidenced in, in long-term thinking about the past as well. But there's also something here about um, how do we actually equip people, you know, what, what's, what's the guidance, what, what, what are the guardrails? And let's face it, pensions are the subject that, you know, tend to, they're not necessarily the subject that's most fascinating for us, right? Uh, rather like doing our tax returns on the kitchen table in, in, in California, it's not the first thing we want to do on, on a Monday morning. Um, and, and often, you know, um, we, when we do pivot to think about what, what are we going to do in retirement, what are we going to do the day after we leave the last executive job we do, uh, what are we going to do uh, to prepare financially for that stage in our life, we're thinking about it too late. We're thinking about the, the morning after, uh, not the... Uh, not the decade before. So I just want to ask one final thought. There's some suggestion in the academic literature and more generally that, that thought experiments, imagining your future self, is a good way of doing this. There's some academic evidence, uh, a, a, a guy who's uh, written about um, the end of history, a wonderfully named academic called Geordie Koibach. Uh, wouldn't, wouldn't you dream of having a name like that for a life in academia? Um, but he's written a, a book called The End of History, and it's not the end of history about, uh, sorry, an article about the end of history, not about the end of history that we've all heard about, but about the fact that most human beings think that we're the final version of ourselves. From the roughly our mid-twenties onwards, most of us think we're the finished product. No. Uh, <laughs> obviously not true, obviously not true, but, 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 what's, but what's remarkable from, from Koibat's work is the number of people who think that they are, if you poll people, they think that most of their preferences will stay fixed. Um, and of course, the easy thought experiment to do on, on that is, is, would you decorate your home the same way today as your 15-year previous self would have decorated your home? And the answer to that is invariably, no way. Um, so, so, but something about how do we imagine ourselves into the future of after work or portfolio work? Is there a thought experiment where we, uh, where we can think about that? Are, where, are there ways of, um, of using imagination to bring to bear? One question that some people ask is, is what is the last job you think you'll have in your life? 
We often ask people what the first job they may have is. What's the last job, whether that's part-time, full-time, volunteer or not? So I just wondered if, if there are any reflections from our panel on thought experiments. How can we get people to think about the future when we tend to be future-averse about thinking about ageing and retirement? And perhaps, um, can I come to perhaps um, Susan first on this? Um, well, we, it's a bit like doing exercises, isn't it? Imagining the scenario, then work and quit. Um, I mean, maybe we should do that in the workplace. I mean, it's part of the sort of... I mean, we, we spend a lot of time on, as I, I, I hope most organisations do, um, training people up, um, workforce planning, getting people with transferable skills, not only to do the job that they have, but you know, future jobs, actually, when they may need to move on. Um, I mean, may, maybe we could sort of set a scenario and just, you know, the sort of part of the general training, take them through this. So Responsibilities as, as employers, yes. David, any thoughts from yourself? Yeah, a couple of just, uh, yeah. so there's a really interesting, I don't know if you've come across the Ellen Langer experiment, so she was a sociologist, um, uh, and she designed this experiment where she got a group of um, older people and put them in this house, where they gave them the music, the decorations, the entertainment, the, everything from when they were a younger person, and it was BBC repeated it a, a few years ago with Vicky Bird and a few others. When people left Ellen Langer's house, they walked out in better health than they walked in. And there was something astonishing about the way our mind works and that taking you back to youth has an impact on. Uh, and I, I mention that because we did some work with um, Money Advice Service on what works with financial education for older people. And frankly, we found not very much. Right? You know, giving someone a leaflet does not get someone more financially prepared, no matter how many leaflets we give people. But actually, the one thing that did work was giving them a photo of their future self. So you give you a photo of your future self, it has an impact on your, your sense of being financially prepared. So there was something really striking in what you're saying about actually how we create those thought experiments to get people to visualise their future self. None of us think about what housing we want to live in, where we want to live, and, and if we did that a bit more, it would mean we were a bit more prepared. Vince, thank you, David. Any thoughts on your side? Well, just a couple, really. I mean, I think we just recognise there's a wide range of human experience. Um, there will be some people, many people, perhaps had past experience of poverty or illness, for whom the key issue is security. You know, security of employment, income, pension, entitlement, whatever. And others for whom, you know, a range of options is what they're looking for, flexibility, doing something interesting. So there's a, there's a wide range, and we have to cater to the range. Um, the other, one of the attractions of the um, idea of learning accounts, which I mentioned briefly, is that instead of having the current model where you have a heavy government subsidy to have statutory state education, not private if you've gone that way, but um, and then university FE, a slug of money thrown at people when they're in their late teens and 20s, and then you're on your own. Uh, you phase payments through life, so you're paid, I don't know, 3,000 when you're 25, another 3,000 when you're 40, another 3,000 when you're 60, and then this gives you the capacity to think afresh about where you want to go, and that that provides the, you know, the kind of scope that you're describing. The, the labour market will dip, differ, your own choices will have differed, your family circumstances will have differed, and you're using the support you have from the state in a way that matches those changes. Thanks, Vincent. I think there is an interesting example from Singapore that does some of this, uh, basically almost an individual credit for learning that can be drawn on later in life. Now, whether that's useful um, skills in much later in life, it, it, it's less clear. Shall we, shall we open it up to the room? Who would like to ask a question? Right, I see a range of hands springing up. Um, let's come here first, sir. Yeah. Uh, oh, sorry, can you just wait for the mic? That's right, because we're online. Of course, I'm, I'm going to try not to discriminate against everybody else. There we are, that's right. I've got a number of questions, but I'll restrict myself to one. Um, it was interesting to finish up with then the learning uh, credit kind of thing. I'm a great believer in universal basic income, which nobody's introduced yet, where 
the state gives you a set amount of money to your thing. Because defining work is another thing that uh, interests me, but that's too complicated. But it's meaningful work throughout our lifetime, you know, um, that we're interested. So I just would like you to say something about universal basic income, if you could please. So if, if we're right, I'm probably going to collect three questions at a time and then come back to our panel. So universal basic income. Uh, should we go just, just there? I'll come back to this side of the room in a minute. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. Can you hear? Yes, you can. Francesca is my name. Uh, the UK government considers me ready for pension age. I've worked for 50 years of my life, five zero. David Sinclair, you'll be very happy to know. My question is, fantastic points that have, been, that have come up. My question is, does it matter of culture as well? Do you know that uh, the Whole Food shop, which is owned by Amazon, gives a 5% discount to people above the age of 60? And do you know what they call us? OAP, and I've been meaning to do a campaign against that, right? So I just wonder, perhaps a question for Susan Schofield, that uh, I, uh, I loved your points about psychology and, and social, but there's a, a question on culture as well, I think. Thank you. Thank you very much. And sir, question here. Yeah, um, thank you very much. I'm an ex-law enforcement intelligence analyst, customs and excise, and we certainly did, before certain internal problems tore us apart, uh, look at things that were coming up. Um, I covered the origins of Wagnerism, the Russian mercenary group, 25 years ago. And the failure to identify and work on that is a long and very, very sorry saga. We needed more Paddy Ashtons. If we'd had more Paddy Ashtons, we'd been in a better position on that. My question is about the great divide, which was actually referred to in a rather caustic but very thought-provoking BBC documentary some months ago by that comedian Rich Hall where he raised the great divide in America and I'd like your comments on here how we're preparing and reacting for that between the generation that had defined bench benefit pensions and those who don't because I, 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 I am a private investor now I'm all right Jack and I am very worried about the drawdown culture that the private sector financial industry is putting forward. I think that's a, it's sending a very high risk message which many people don't understand. Thank you. So thank you very much. Back to the panel. So we have um, universal basic income. The question of the importance of culture in, in this, uh, particularly in this life change um, address season, and then the question about divide, you know, this transition away from de the defined benefit uh, uh, generation uh, who are a lot luckier than those um, after. Um, so, should we come to the panel first? Um, should we take universal basic income first? Who, who'd like to come in a minute? Well, that's a very simple way of characterising a complicated argument, but it would be to say that it's clearly more effective to use a given sum of money to channel it to people with the greatest need than to spread it amongst everybody. I mean, why should the people in the panel benefit from a basic income when we don't need it? Uh, I mean, clearly that's an oversimplifying. You can, you can have more complex variants using personal allowances in the tax system to beef up universal basic income, etc. But the common sense point is that if you're trying to concentrate resources on people who need it because of poverty or, in, or disability, it's best to do it through a universal credit system than it is through a universal basic income. But one shouldn't be dogmatic about it. I mean, there are experiments being tried in different countries. I think in this country, I think the Welsh government is doing an experiment. Uh, so, you know, we should be open to evidence and let's see what these experiments produce. Do I repeat what's going on? Yeah, I, was going to, I, I think UBI is one of those that. Are in 15, 20, uh, 20 years time we'll say why didn't we, you know, this was the, you know, this, this I don't think it will be seen as anywhere near as radical, I think the, the, uh, 
um, it's how that's the two, you know, two of the really key things. You know, what happens for, you know, it, it, is it the same for everyone across the whole age, including for pensioners? Do you get rid of the state pension and replace it with this? Then what do you have to offer? So th those sort of things policymakers are smart enough to work out. And then also we know that people with disabilities need more money. So actually, how do you account for that with a universal database? But my, my sense is that we should do these trials, and my gut feeling is we would probably, but 15 years' time, think this makes sense. Why haven't we done it before? Susan, both, both UBI and, and the question of culture. Yes, I mean, I do think culture, a very, very fair point. Um, and old age pensioners, yes, I, I think it is. I mean, I went through times being, what does that young woman know about anything? And then the hair changed colour. And they said, what's that old woman know about anything? So I know exactly how you feel. Um, the, the only thing I would say is, I mean, I do think we need to think about our terminology carefully. And as folks are saying, I think all this is going to look very, very out of date in quite perhaps a surprisingly few number of years. The only thing I would say, which is perhaps a very, very tri trivial point, OAPs, yes, for most of us, that means old age pensioners, doesn't it? Until you work from the NHS, which has something called an OAP, which is an out-of-area patient. So again, it depends which culture you're talking about. Sorry, a tri trivial point. But I think we're going to move on very quickly to something that looks, really, I hope, much more Scandinavian. And shall we move on to this question about defined benefit pensions? I, I, I should say I have an interest in this. I, I'm, I'm, I'm a unicorn. I'm the last generation that benefits from a classic pension in, or premium pension in the civil service that gives me a pension from the age of 60, uh, which was worth a lot more money, dare I say, than probably uh, some of the government valuations put it at. Um, but any, any view on this, this um, generational division between the, the beneficiaries of TV schemes? And I think, sir, you're also referring to some of the challenges around allegations of mis-selling around people surrendering some of those DB schemes oh, early and, and why as well. But, I mean, yeah. the British, the, the Welsh steel workers would be yeah. something yeah. easier. Yeah. So, panel members, who wants to come in on this? David. And, and can I just very quickly come in on the ageism point as well? Because I think, you know, Vince was a direct victim of ageism. You know, absolutely. As was today. I don't know if any of you have seen the coverage of Charlotte Owen. Just absolutely. Oh, I just saw a tweet this morning with 2,000 comments on a young woman because she had blonde hair being made appear. Now, I know nothing about it, I know nothing about it, but it is completely unacceptable that we are treating and talking about people, whether they're young or they're old, simply because of their age or the way they look. It's absolutely the heart of the problem we have here. Anyway, let me rank them. Uh, DB versus TC, the real thing that we're not talking about, you know, for, your, for your course, uh, Alexander, is basically the end of DBs means no retirements, and we're not having that conversation. There is no prospect, I, you know, going back to my 28 years, that the future of retirement looks anything like the past, because we can't, we're passing risk onto individuals. Um, individuals aren't taking the magnitude of that risk. We're not seeing anywhere near the growth we saw in the 1980s. If we saw 1980s levels growth and we worked three years longer, it would be, we'd probably be fine, but we're not. So, so we have to face a future where, for most people, we aren't going to retire. And what we don't want, it, I don't think we want, is you know the layoffs issue, the, the, the layoffs issue where actually everyone is being forced to work for, for 40, 50 years of their adult life because frankly there is nothing else for them. And I think the failure of successive governments to really address the fact that we're really in trouble here is a really significant problem. So, so what's the course to solve? <laughs> yes, it's, it's, it's no longer, of yeah. course, there's an absolute distinction because it was clear a couple of decades ago that as we moved over from a direct benefit system, a lot of people would just not do anything and just hope for the best when they retired onto a state pension. So that was why Steve Webb introduced stakeholder pensions, which you have to opt out of. So a large number of people who aren't on DB systems now benefit from a, a modest state-backed stakeholder pension which supplements what you're entitled to. So it isn't an absolute clear divide. I think the other point about this is that it links into the bigger argument that's taking place now about how our pension funds operate. Uh, that, that, that because of regulation, safety first, um, most of the big pension funds um, 
in which your direct contributions go don't earn a particularly good return. They're, 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 they've got gilts and, and so on. So um, some, some are arguing, including the official opposition, that uh, they should be given the freedom to invest much more in risk capital, which will then go into British, uh, British Stock Exchange and hopefully earn um, a, bigger, a bigger return for these people who are free to invest. Uh, but, of course, there's more risk associated with you know, you could have a crash. Um, so I, I, the issue about how much you're actually paid is linked in with the question about what we want our pension funds to do. Become just low-risk, low-yielding institutions or gamble to some extent with our money to help boost the economy. That's a big, big economic policy question. Thanks, Susan. Do you want to comment on this one at all? Um, just to say I've been doing my forward financial planning with a very, very good financial planning advisor. <coughs> and I have always been able to afford, and aren't I so lucky, um, good legal and financial advice. Um, I do think, again, that's one of the great inequalities. Um, if you can afford it, you get good advice. And if you can't afford it, you haven't got any advice at all, you're particularly vulnerable. Something needs to be done about this. I'm not sure I have an instant answer, but I think there really should be an access of um, advice to everybody, some sort of government service that in default can advise. Thank you, thank you. And, and of course that reads across to this question about illiteracy as well and, and general epiphany. I, I've neglected this side of the room, I promise, I, I, I've neglected that, I will come over there as well. Let me come to this side of the room first, sir, here. And we'll take three again. Okay. Hello, can you hear me? Yes, yes. thank you. <clears throat> so, excuse my stutter in case if I made a mistake. One quote which I was going to mention is that documentaries, which is really good about talking about ageing well, is that there's a really good documentary called Golden End of Ageism, and I don't know if anybody heard of it, and it would be good to have a documentary night where we watch the film and then do a discussion afterwards. And another thing I was going to mention is that um, how we can raise an awareness about retirement uh, rethinking is by campaigning in the public. And what we're not doing enough of is campaigning about ageing well. And we need to do more of that and get do like campaigning like on the streets. So like if you feel nervous, we could do it on the pavement instead of doing it on the road. And what I've been doing is my campaign is called Engagers All Ages. So if you look it up on Instagram, TikTok, Facebook or Twitter, you will find it. And it's called Engagers All Ages. And one thing that is important that we should definitely talk about, and we not seem to get the awareness going, is that once we reach over 25 or certain places like social life or work, people feel like unwelcome or neglected and we're not seem to be talking about it enough and how we can change things is by campaigning I'm, I'm prepared to take a risk and lose my career for campaigning just for you so yeah thank you very much um, so let's take two more can I take it back and then gentlemen at the back as well hi um um, I just wanted to take up um, uh, Vince's very compassionate reference to manual workers. And I'm just thinking of someone like my dad, who, my late father, who was a bricklayer for 50 plus years. How are we going to deal with people who are doing, somebody made a reference to shit jobs earlier. I don't know if, if you would consider a brick even a shit job, but a tough manual, tough manual work right into your late 60s, how are we going to handle that? Thank you, and we've got two more questions in the middle, so why don't we try and take both of these, if that's right. Gentleman at the back, and then gentleman just Thank in front. Thank you so much. Um, David Graeber would not have put a brickie as a shit job, bullshit job. No, I would like No, that. no, nobody would. Uh, David Graeber made up the term. Um, so, oh yeah, um, I wanted to just quickly refer back to this fantastic Samuel Beckett play called Crap's Last Tape, where the first act is he's 40, he's listening to his 20-year-old say, oh, life is like this, life is like this. And the 40-year-old says, he didn't know what he's talking about. Second act, 60-year-old listens to the 40-year-old, he didn't know what he's talking about. So the point is, we don't know what we want in our lives, especially looking forward. We, we almost don't almost know what we want right now. But if we try to predict it, 
it makes it difficult. The point about that is it's very, very hard to make public policy when we don't even know ourselves what our lives are going to be like or what we want for our old age and retirement. Nevertheless, we kind of need that information because I agree very much with what Vincent says, Vince Cable, Mr. Cable, Professor Cable, about security and money being the root of this. So putting those things in place needs careful knowledge about um, what it is that people need and want. Um, it's a massive research project. We're at the LSE. So maybe that's the a suggestion for the LSE. But anyway, you've got the point. Thank you very much. And I think just, just in front there, yeah. Thank you. Um, I've got no questions. I've got one comment and one answer. Um, my comment is that I am extremely happily retired no longer hiding behind what I was, and I'm exploring who I am. And I'm loving by simply no longer being defined by my job. My job required an awful lot of people to stand up when I walked in the room, and I found that all rather uh, good to be, see the back of. Um, my one answer is, I think, a question you raised, Professor Evans, about do we know what our last jobs are going to be? And mine are simply the four things. One is to be a good human being. Another is to be a good husband. I hope I have been so far for 36 years, and maybe for a few more. Another is to be a good father. And most importantly, perhaps, and most recently, is to be a good grandparent. That's all. Thank you. No questions. Thank you. Thank you very much. We are, we are fast approaching the witching hour, which is two o'clock when you get to go and enjoy not necessarily the sunshine, but the thunderstorm that is promised to us unreliably by uh, BBC Meteorology for the last day. Um, but can I come back to our panel for perhaps like closing reflections on any of the themes that came out of those last questions? Um, Vince, can I come to you first? Well, I, I was fascinated by the question of somebody who said, what, what about a bricklayer? You know, how does the system help them? And I, and I was struck by the fact that in all manners of ways, our system is stacked against them. Uh, first of all, uh, it's, it's insecure work. Uh, they lose their job during the winter time if the weather's appalling. The benefit system doesn't accommodate that in and out type of employment. Um, the Gordon Brown's tax credit system tried to do it, but it was too complicated, it fell apart. Uh, then, you know, they, don't, they have to work longer to get the same state pension. They've got a set of skills that is not immediately obvious how you do a career progression unless you're going to become a supervisor. So the whole system is skewed against people who are doing, well, semi-casual but specific types of building work in, say, the construction industry. And, of course, the final problem is that nobody represents them because... You know, I've been in Parliament for 20 years. I can't remember a single bricklayer ever appearing in Parliament. You know, the working class have disappeared from politics. You've got more women, you've got more ethnic minorities, but the old working class has gone. Uh, and certainly anybody in the construction industry would be a very rare sight in politics. So you, you've hit a raw nerve. I don't know what the answer is. <laughs> Thanks, Susan. Um, I do think and very much agree... Um, we should all reflect firstly on how we make our best contribution at whatever stage of life we are. Um, the being a good human being bit, I think, yes. We should all think on that. Uh, two final things for me. One, picking up on the art and the point about the, 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 the watching documentary. There's a lovely, and I've forgotten its name, but there's a lovely um, Sondheim musical, so someone to check it out, where they go from being old to being young. Anyone remember what it's called? Um, but essentially, you've got a group of people who start off with um, um, in their 50s and 60s, and it's a terribly sad story because actually, as they get younger, they get more optimistic, and I think we need to turn that around. Um, <laughs> and then the, this is the final thing to say, and this is my selfish rather than the, the sort of, you know, absolutely want to be a better person all the time, of course, is as someone who spent all their time sitting down, I want, and this is going to sound really bad, I sort of want to 
work in one of those Amazon factories and, or, in, uh, or in Argos in my retirement. And the main reason is because I'm fascinated by what people would buy. I'd be like, ooh, someone's bought one of them. And I would spend the whole time, I'd love the idea of walking 10,000 steps. Now, now, when I'm in my 60s, 70s, 80s, I may not want to, but, but you know, I think this, the point about we all need to think about what we actually want to do and what the little bits of pleasure, I think, extraordinarily important. But some, you know, I think, the people who, you know, I sometimes feel like, uh, you know, people who sit in the office, you get, oh, you're very lucky, you sit there. I would so love to do a job where I do not have to sit down all the time and I'd be in the room bit there. Yeah. So, look, thank you very much. I'm going to conclude by, uh, you know, uh, referencing a Jeanette Winston novel from the mid-1990s where one of the characters in Art and Lies was a Catholic doctor called Handel who says, I can answer most of my patients' questions except one, uh, which is how should I live my life? And I think part of the challenge around this in public policy terms is, is we're talking really about life advice here. And that's you know, something that government can play a part in or may not. Uh, but, but you also need to have people who are interested in, in uh, accessing advice at any given moment. What you've heard here, I think, is, is a theme that reflects LSE research in process, because a group of us at LSE are thinking about how to convert some of these questions at the moment into public policy facing research. So at, at times you'll get, uh, I think, uh, uh, information or, or an exhibition of LSE research at fruition. This is very much an example of LSE uh, research in inception. But I hope you'll all thank, uh, uh, join me in thanking the panel, who's done a wonderful job, and thank you for giving up an hour of your time that well, you will never get back. <laughs> Thanks very much. Thank you for listening. You can subscribe to the LSE Events Podcast on your favourite podcast app and help other listeners discover us by leaving a review. Visit lse.ac.uk forward slash events to find out what's on next. We hope you join us at another LSE event soon.